sponsored by Zero Accounting Software, who proudly support female entrepreneurs and help business owners to see their finances clearly. For help in getting your business digital ready, visit xero.com. Hello everybody and welcome back to this week's episode of the She Can, She Did podcast, aka the podcast in which I, Fiona Grayson, sit down with female founders in their teens, 20s and 30s, dotted around the UK and ask them to open up to me about everything they've been through behind the scenes, the good, the bad and the at times oh so ugly to get to where they are with their businesses today. Before I introduce this week's episode, I am very happy to announce that the tickets for the next London midweek mingle on the 4th of July are now live. I honestly have no idea where time is going because this will be the 11th midweek mingle to date which honestly blows my mind but I'm so determined to make sure that this one is the best one yet so if you haven't got your tickets yet please do take a peek at the event details on shecanshedid.com former podcast guest Sophie T of the art empire that is Sophie T Art who spoke to me on episode 8 and Jess and Nat from Macamore who natted to me in episode 5 are going to be chatting on the panel alongside the amazing Mako Nadoro founder of Berry and Brie and Maxine Thompson founder of Poker Pants so I just know we're going to have a real giggle on the night their stories are all so inspiring they've all pushed through a whole lot to get to where they are today so yes I am quietly confident when I say that it's going to be one really inspiring panel as well as that, new for this mingle, we also have a quick fire warm up led by Kerry Ann Bradley, the founder of Pilates at Your Desk, who will get us all sitting up straight and feeling energised for the night ahead. I thought that because so many of us spend so much time sitting on our bums in front of our laptops all day, a few top tips from Kerry Ann might go a long way. I know they will for me. And of course, there will also be tincture G&Ts flowing all night long, served by Tincture's amazing founder, Hannah Lamaroy, who will be driving up from Cornwall to be there on the night. The goodie bags will be waiting for you on your seats on arrival stuff full of all of my favorite beauty and foodie treats which by the way are worth a whole lot more than your ticket and of course there's also going to be a whole room full of really genuine down-to-earth ambitious amazing women to mingle and natter to all night long so basically what's not to love that's that's the point i'm going for (laughs) at the time of recording this 41 of the 90 tickets have gone in under 24 hours which literally blows my mind so thank you so much and if you'd like to join us there please do get yours soon so that you don't miss out. Anyway, back to this episode with a woman who, given that I'm pretty much addicted to peanut butter, I am slightly concerned, um, I've admired since long before I launched She Can, She Did, the lady in question being, of course, 30-year-old Pippa Murray, the praiseworthy founder of Pip and Nut, the multi-million pound nut butter brand that she summarises in her opening statement very well, so I'll let her handle that one for you, but essentially they make the best nut butters going out there, and that's a fact if you ever did hear one. Having started working on Pip and Nut at the age of 24, Pip reveals the process that went into scaling the brand from a market stall business that she ran on her weekends to a multi-million pound company that is now stocked in over 5,000 stores UK wide. And of course, how her role as founder has evolved throughout that process. She opens up about the various funding methods that she's used since day one and her advice for anyone looking to raise. We also discuss the painful reality that Brexit had on Pip and Nut when Pippa woke up on the 26th of June June 2016 hundreds of thousands of pounds down and how she manages days like that when the reality of owning a company tests your resilience beyond belief and of course what downtime and self-care looks like for her her proudest moments along the way plus a whole lot of other bits and bobs thrown in for good measure because you know I love a chat for me it's impossible not to respect what Pippa's pushed
pushed through to get to where she is today. And as always, I know I say it every week, but I really genuinely enjoyed every second of this chat. So Pippa Nuts is an all-natural food brand. Um, we make amazing nut butter that tastes delicious, but also happens to be free from any sort of palm oils or any refined sugars. So you kind of feel quite good about yourself when you eat them too. Um, but very much a brand that's all about how you can change and shift the perception that healthy eating has to be boring, tasteless, salads. But really, it's for us, it's more about what you put in rather than what you're taking out. So... We're really against anything that's diet this or low fat that. We think it's all about celebrating food and encouraging people to um, have a bit more of a positive relationship with food. And it tastes yummy. And it's fundamentally yummy. Yeah. yeah that's, the, that's the backbone of everything we do. Like nothing gets out our door. If it doesn't taste good, regardless of whether it's good for you from a health perspective, it has to taste amazing. But that's, that is like so important though, isn't it? Because I feel like that's where quite a few brands did go wrong like a couple of years ago when the gluten-free from stuff yeah. started to take off. I feel like a lot of brands kind of said, oh, they still taste yummy. And you bite into them and you're like, well, mm. do they know? Whereas I feel like you've really kind of nailed it because they do <laughs> yeah and I think there's it's about not over promising I think as well so you know if you're selling a I don't know a gluten free brownie that's but really it's just a date filled bar it sort of it doesn't really deliver I don't know to someone's expectations yeah. so I think as well it's as much about managing that yeah. um, and making sure that if you are saying you're being a good swap for a brownie then you you kind of got to almost be on par with it in yeah, order to yeah. convince someone that this a healthier alternative is really going to deliver. I mean how long has Pippin up been going for now? So we've been going for um, about four years or just over four years now. So that's really when it started like it's such a saturated market now. Like, yeah. like you were kind of one of the early entries. Entrance? Entrance yeah to the, to the market. market. That, that's a phrase. Yeah it? definitely. <laughs> Yeah, so four four years ago, or rewind four and a half years ago, you know, there weren't really any kind of, I guess I call them life, a lifestyle brand within this space, and also very much something that kind of more natural approach. And yeah, there's much more kind of competition in the market for sure, um, but we very much came at a really good time where, I think as a brand, we were all about, you know, when I was shopping just as a consumer, I always used to notice there wasn't really anything on the market that felt like, from a brand and a product perspective, really resonated for me in this particular space in the supermarket. So it was as much as a brand opportunity as it was a product opportunity. So you were what, training for marathons at the time? Yeah, so I was... Um, I think I was training for the Paris Marathon um, and I do actually remember going on sort of long training runs with my friend Gemma and kind of mulling over the idea with her whilst we were like running trying to come up with an, an idea for or a name for the brand as well like on those kind of long runs <laughs> And it's sort like of forming. When you're training for a marathon, the amount of rubbish that you end up talking about. Oh, yeah. That's no, totally. Like, you just have to pass the time, don't you? Yeah, you've got to talk about something. <laughs> you've got to fill your head with something whilst yeah. you're kind of pounding the streets. And, yeah, I mean, I was... Like, it's always been, like, my post-running sort of treat um peanut butter I used to like always eat it by the spoonful or maybe as I like pre-running kind of get me out the door give myself a bit of an energy boost and so I think it was it was definitely linked to kind of a product that I ate all the time and one which I think just over time caught my eye about what it could could be um in terms of as a a product that didn't have palm oil in it um, and also introducing things like almond butter and different flavours we've got like a coconut almond and things like that that I was like actually you could do a lot with this product it takes flavours really beautifully yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I think it, I'd, you know, it wasn't necessarily a light bulb moment, but it was certainly like a gradual kind of like figuring yeah, out. Time that, to think about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It probably took about six months before I was like, you know what, I think this product range and potential brand could be a business. Yeah. When that hit six months in, what did the actual reality of launching a peanut butter brand look like in terms of it's so easy to kind of have the idea? Mm. Well, that actually isn't that easy coming up with a good idea, but like then making it a reality. Because food is one of those things where, in terms of like all the legalities and all the mm. kind of health and safety stuff that you have to go through, like how did you know where to start? Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think you look at you go into a supermarket and you're like, how the hell does all this stuff get made? Yeah. And, and where does it come from? Yeah, where do you even start? And it feels like very foreign um, world to enter into. But I think the basic principles um, very much started in a kitchen tabletop scenario so bought a fancy robocoop blender and developed the products in my kitchen and I mean I didn't even really call it product development at that stage it was a kind of case of flinging uh, flinging a load of products into a blender and seeing what came out the other side and working on recipe um I think that was the first instance and it's normally what most people find the easiest is just the kind of the creative part of creating different flavors and figuring out what the basic principles of the recipes are and I used to sell go and make a batch of like 200 jars and I'd go to Maltby Street Market in Bermondsey in London every um, Saturday and Sunday and sell those products at the weekend that I'd made in my kitchen whilst I was doing my day job. What and kind I of packaging? Actually you can see it behind you, you can't see it now, but it was, that's the first oh, that's yeah. the first um, oh cheap and cheerful version. So it was always Pip and Nut, the name, but the packaging itself was just totally different. It was a mate of mine that did it for got a, a lot of fancier branding. Got a bit fancy, yeah. a bit more <laughs> a bit more mainstream. So it started very, very premium, yeah. sort of very like you can imagine that sitting quite happily just in Selfridges but not really making it to Literally, Asda. Literally, like a Selfridges popping up butter. Yeah, and then I was like, right, it needs to be, a, I want a national brand, so it needs yeah. to be slightly more commercial um, in terms of the look and feel. So, it, yeah, it evolved over time, and then I think once I tested it in the markets and was like, you know what, the recipes in principle work, and I think enough people are responding in a positive way mm. to this that I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and scale it up. And so it was very much that like market chatting to people. Yeah. Did you have like what samples and stuff? Loads of samples, and would sell the products. And um, you know, I feel like if you manage to sell out every day at a market stall and consistently sell it out, and obviously I was only making a limited runs anyway, but you know, I'd sell two, three hundred jars at a market stall in a day, and I was like, you know what, I That's think amazing. this is quite a good sign and then you get some people coming back and buying it again which again felt quite good test but yeah I wasn't out with a clipboard and a survey and being like what do you think and give me an answer to one to five but I always like market stores because people if you, even if you're standing behind the stool and if someone picks up the product to try it from on a cracker or something if they hate it they'll say it right there and then be like Whoa, and they'll talk to their friend and go it tastes disgusting as if you're not there <laughs> So you kind of do get a really good filter for like, yeah, does that land with people and what are they saying? Um, so yeah, I think it's a really nice way to kind of get initial concept landed and then you can, you, then takes a fair bit of heavy lifting to try and work out how to scale it, which involve, involves factories and all the joy of working with manufacturers. In, in terms of that, like scaling, there must have been a turning point. So how did you approach the scaling bit because I think that's a bit where it's easy to kind of play it safe at the marketing mm. weekend but then taking it to a national brand yeah I think there were a few things that were playing into my thinking on that which was firstly it was physically really hard work making the product in a kitchen by myself and I did think 
okay, maybe I could scale this up in a small way and, you know, get a team of five people in a kitchen with blenders and making it like that. So that was one option. And then I was like, but the other option is to find someone else that can do it. And that's when you start to go down the rabbit war and I was like, well, what exactly is involved in that and how big a risk is it going to be to make it at that scale? Now, the reason why I didn't choose the first option was partly because I think that well, with my product, there is an element of needing to get some sort of access to buying power. Like it, like you said, it's a really competitive space. And if you are wanting a national brand, you need to be competitive from a price point perspective. And working at that smaller scale, it's just not feasible. Like you won't be able to be landing it on Sainsbury's supermarket shelves and being price competitive. And I think that soon knocked out that option. I just knew I wouldn't be able to get enough scale with a small scale production facility if I wanted to make it a national supermarket brand. So then I knew, well, I'll go down the other route and I just started exploring it. And again, just takes quite a long time to familiarize yourself with the language that's being spoken, but also where do you start? And I think that's where you end up having to knock on a lot of doors, both of mates who might work in the industry, maybe speaking to some consultants about how you go about doing it, go to talks like yours to kind of get a bit firsthand kind of understanding of what people are saying and just figuring it out and I mean Basically, LinkedIn's amazing like that. LinkedIn, like, connect with people on LinkedIn yeah. and find the heads of marketing or the heads of know, buying or yeah. product, whatever the title is exactly just find them in a little message yeah and just you could ask way. four questions and get quite a lot from that mm-hmm. even if it's just on an email or even better get on a phone call and I think from there at some point you have got to take a bit of a jump and go and meet a factory kind of work out what's going on and winging it Mm. Um, and you know did several factory visits where I have no idea what I was talking about and was probably quite obviously a newbie on the scene (laughs) but with it you get that understanding of like oh right they're talking about MOQs that means minimum order quantities and okay they're talking about metric tonnage I need to start thinking about my product in metric tonnage not just how many units I'm selling and (laughs) all this different language and you understand slowly understand what what's important to a factory um you know what what do they care about and therefore what do you need to convince them about to work with you and I think what I often find when you're starting something up is that you have an assumption that factories are desperate to work on new innovative products. But the, re- the fact of the matter is that they really just want big volumes, ideally a Tesco contract to come along the way and fill their lines. So working with a small startup that has no customers for them is like a pain in the arse. Mm-hmm. So you have to sell them the dream, you have to sell them what you're going to do, like the potential volumes and amount of money they're going to make at some point but also that you're a credible person and that you are responsible and you've got you know you've got enough understanding of what you've got to do did that come easy not the credible person bit but did the speaking convincing like the big volumes when you don't necessarily have those yet did that yeah. come easy to you it, I'm thinking it's the same as I guess speaking to an investor and talking the big money when the money's not there yet totally and it is um, I think initially I found it really difficult to have that ambitious language. I think uh, whether it's a female thing or it's just a me thing, but I always felt a bit uncomfortable being like, yeah, we're going to be a multi-million pound brand by X number of years. I always felt a bit like, oh, I don't know. If we, I have no idea whether <laughs> oh, yeah. we are. I, like that self-doubt creeps in and also being like, are they going to laugh at me if I say this number? Like, is it going to feel ridiculous? But I think if you run it past a few people in the industry and sort of sense check, is this feasible? Is my forward-looking three-year planner, are these numbers kind of credible or am I completely, you know, (laughs) speaking rubbish? (laughs) I think you'll soon get a bit of a benchmark. Um, So, I mean, it's a bit like going to job interviews. You fluff up a few job interviews and it's a bit crap and then 
over time you suddenly start to be quite good at it and yeah I think that if you meet the right partner right manufacturing partner they will buy into you as much as any like investor might as an example but yeah it's a really nerve-wracking experience and I remember being I was 24 at the time and I'd rock up at factories in the middle of nowhere in Holland not really knowing what to expect you just have to walk through the door and just have an air of confidence and just go for it and it is incredibly intimidating but you've just got to suck it up and that sounds a really crap thing to say no, but because it's just, I, that to me is the reality like yeah it's never, it, I, I just feel like you can't have it both ways it can't yeah. always be easy so it's not going to feel comfortable yeah. all the time yeah. and almost just got to think of it as like kind of a bit of an exciting adventure and the worst comes to the worst you walk out a bit red-faced and you You'll don't speak to them again <laughs> yeah and they laugh at you as you walk out the door but what came first the orders like a big order mm. or the factory factory so I didn't have any customers at the time again this is a bit like how you kind of sell the dream you might say we're speaking to x and we're speaking to y you know you might imply that it's all going really well but I didn't have any orders and all I knew was that I had an MOQ minimum order quantity of a certain number of thousands of units that I had to order to get off the ground and I commissioned myself to doing that and I think there's something quite good about having a bit of urgency behind you know you've got I don't know 5,000 products that you've got to sell. You're going to have to go and run with it. And once I'd sourced out the factory, knew I could make it, then I did start speaking to the likes of Selfridges and some of the people that I wanted to launch with, um, who I managed to confirm before I launched the brand. But the factory certainly came first because I think otherwise you have no idea what cost price they're going to give you and therefore you can't work out what pricing on shelf you're going to be and all the rest of it. So... Yeah. And so Selfridges were the first? They were the first, yeah. What did it feel like? Quite surreal, actually. Um, And I remember we we launched in January 2015, and I remember doing the first production run and calling up my sister the night before... Um, uh, no, it was it was going into our what you see today, and I remember just being like, I have no idea whether this is going to sell, and this really horrible feeling of like knowing that you've just spent twenty thousand pounds on products yeah. that you have no idea if even if it gets into Selfridges whether or not anyone's going to pick it up, and yeah, but when it got into Selfridges and you can then start hustling, I feel like actually that's like the bit that you can start to control, like so you're in charge of your own destiny at that point. So you know, seeing it on the shelves of Selfridges, being like, right, this is a reality, and now let's do loads of samplings let's start spreading the word let's talking about it on social media sending it to people getting people to um you know pr it put it in newspapers product placement all this stuff you know then it's like your job starts and you can start to really prove yourself and it is like that because ultimately the first when you're setting something up it's so you're so dependent on other people responding to your emails or you know you're waiting on someone to send you something and, you know, the factory is holding back and being really slow. Whereas this bit is like, right, you can move, you can get cracking and, yeah, game on. But, yeah, definitely highlight of the whole experience is seeing it in there and, like, seeing my mum's reaction to it when she saw it on shelf and friends and family buying it. Um, was, it was it a case of asking friends and family to help you with all of that marketing and PR and in the early days or did you outsource that from the beginning yeah from the start always had a PR agency so had a what was the kind of thinking behind that I think I just knew it was would be a good investment to start to create some hype around the brand. I went with a really tiny PR agency um, who was sort of a one-woman band and was really great because it was relatively low cost, but actually in terms of building credibility for the brand, regardless of whether or not the sales... I don't think PR really does a huge amount for sales. It just broadens your awareness mm-hmm. and it's just one of the many touch points you need to do to 
yeah, get someone to pick it up. Yeah, like you can never really measure it against an uplift in sales, but it creates a halo and kind of excitement around the brand. And I think just it plays well into that marketing mix. And I think for a brand like Pippa Not, which is quite cool, quite on trend, it felt like an easier win versus any anything else. So that was a bit of a given and I felt a good investment to go forwards mm-hmm. and then you know for me social media has always been a big part of building the brand and doing so many samplings I've done hundreds of samplings in Whole Foods <laughs> particularly in the first couple of years and, and people are always shocked when you're there yeah every so often people would be like I, I sort of mentioned that in Pip and they'd put two and two together and be like oh you're the Pip the drop the penny would drop um which is always quite cool actually don't do so many samplings now but if we do big events I like to do a day on the stand or something like that and just love it it's nothing better than speaking to people about your product and hearing well, their first hand I cannot imagine many people try that and go oh that's rough no definitely and that's like always been the gratifying thing about the product it's like it's always always landed really well so yeah I've been fortunate in that sense how has your role as the founder evolved over the past four years every year I think my or every six months almost my job changes and sometimes actually one of the things I find hardest is kind of figuring out what's my job You know, in the first days, it's really easy. You're just doing everything. And then you start to bring on people and your role shifts as they pick up things that you were once doing. So, you know, first year I was running the supply chain. I was doing our big lot of sales and I was doing the social media on my tube journey on the way in. Whereas now I've got a senior team who... Um, in every area, sales, marketing, operations, finance, who kind of feed into me and it much more becomes about how you can delegate stuff out and be more outward facing and you know visible as a founder of the business. But I find it, yeah, it can be quite difficult because you're almost trying to, you're, you're, your business is growing and you're trying to learn how to run a business whilst you're also scaling it. So you're kind of always playing catch up and sometimes you feel a bit of a master of or no, you don't feel like a master of anything, you just kind of know a lot about a lot of things but not much detail. So it's a really funny one, you're kind of fast-tracked and you almost have to kind of figure out what's going to be your specialism within the business Um, and it changes all the time. You said senior team, the the main kind of heads of all those departments now older than you? Um, Mixture really, there is kind of slightly different dynamic different um, age, slightly older group of people now but coming into business which I think is good, kind of gives you a bit more diversity and different thinking Um, but yeah, so some of them are older and I think actually to some extent people enjoy it because there is an element of like, there's a reason why you've hired a head of marketing, they definitely know more than you so you almost kind of say it up front and say these are your decisions now to be me yeah, tell me what what you think I don't need to tell you what to do because you should definitely know more about this than I do so I think you kind of almost got to come to terms with the fact that you'll often be the person in the room being like, I'm still going to ask some stupid questions because I still don't really know what I'm doing either so you're going to need to help me out a bit But that must create quite like just a safe environment, if the boss is saying, oh can you clarify that they must feel like they can be like yeah. Pip, I need help. Yeah, like, I hope so. Nice. Yeah, I hope it gives it a bit of a kind of flat structure, but also Not that... Not you being like, know it all, you know? Yeah, exactly. And what's quite nice is that, taking marketing as an example, like, I know how to grow a brand from zero to X million 
and do it on really streamlined, stripped back budgets. Mm. What I don't know how to do is if we've got slightly bigger budgets, how to spend that well and spend it on you know slightly bigger campaigns and make sure that that you're not just burning money. So it's quite nice. There's still something that both people are learning from each other because it's quite a unique experience growing something from scratch where mm. there was nothing existing before. Whereas I don't really know how to do a national big billboard campaign. I have no idea how you go about how about doing that we've yet to do it but we're planning a big campaign in September so and I don't think it'll be quite nationwide there may be a few targeted yeah, billboards in the right place <laughs> that will be seen by a few thousand people probably but um, we're getting there Really quickly, because the branding did change, mm. you know, what was your kind of thinking behind the fact that you've, you've mentioned that it is quite a cool brand, all mm. of that, like, did you have a kind of a look or certain attributes that you wanted people to associate with the brand from the outset? Yes, I knew when, when I kind of, I initially did some branding to take it to markets, which was just, I knew I'd change, it just, it was something so I could go and test it. Yeah. So when I worked on sort of developing the brand that I wanted to take and become um, Pip and Nut, I knew I wanted a really personality-driven brand, one that wasn't just a name but had a bit more to it. And that's why I really loved the um, identity that we ended up with, which is sort of leaping squirrel that becomes a bit of a character for the brand, but it's so distinctive and so unique that it's incredibly difficult to get that kind of, it's so unique to us and helpful, I think, in terms of consumers recognising the brand. And I've been really inspired by a few of my favourite brands are brands like, um, I love the collective dairy, they have like a cow um, as that holds the name of the brand. And I loved like Bear Nibbles, which is like a fruit snacking brand that has the name like kind of enclosed within the shape of a bear and so when I saw Paper Knot and the way how it kind of like the squirrel's hell formed the pea I just loved the personality that came through it but I remember kind of I didn't again didn't know huge amounts about branding at that particular point so I remember saying to the agency that I worked with no it has to be Instagrammable which sounds like a bit of a shallow thing to say but I knew that being born in this yeah Yeah. you're born in digital age and I, I wanted the brand to look beautiful enough that people wanted to take a picture of it and share it but yeah I worked with a brilliant design agency who really helped bring what I had vaguely in my head in terms of the feelings that I wanted to feel when I held the brand into something physical um, and with a bit more meat around the bones. In terms of you mentioned like working with the design agency PR from the outset the order to the factory what was your approach to financing it all because mm. if you're 24 what was your well yeah how did how did you know when to start with that as well um when i was just in that early setup phase i kept it as lean as I could. I got a sort of personal loan from the startup loans company, um, 10 grand, and then I had a lot of credit cards that I kind of used to kind of fund myself as well as um, the business. And it was only until a few months before I launched that I decided to do a crowdfunding campaign. So I did a Crowdcube, which is um, an equity crowdfunding site where you pull investors onto the site and they put money into the business and take equity in return. I remember speaking to them and um, you're one of their case studies, miracle case studies. (laughs) (laughs) God, high high, um, uh, expectations to live up to with them. But you know what, I loved crowdfunding. I did it four months before the brand properly launched and I loved it because it was... You know, you brought on 80 investors, all of who are massive advocates for the brand, hopefully buy it. But also you spread the risk across 80 people. So you're not 
talking to Auntie Jane who's put in 40 grand and you feel like bad if anything goes wrong. It's sort of awkward Christmas. Exactly, where you feel you can't look anyone in the eye. Whereas this kind of, it, you know, people put in maybe five grand or a hundred pounds, like it really varies. And, you know, kind of ease the pressure a bit. But also, more importantly, I think they're quite backseat investors. They don't get particularly involved in a kind of quite a good way. Like they kind of let you get on with it. So particularly in the first year, you know, I just felt like I could do what I needed to do, figure it out as I went along without the pressure of being sending Having board minutes. And, yeah. yeah. Later down the line, we brought on sort of angel investors into the business and did follow-up rounds. And the funding has increased and therefore slightly more responsibility to kind of give information back to investors. But I think keeping it as lean as you possibly can is a great thing. You know what, well, if I did it again, I would try and fund it completely without any investment I think you could do it these days because there are lots of different kind of things that you could pull on because um, I think yeah then you can then you can dictate exactly how you're going to grow it without even having to ask anyone else and so anyway there are, I think there are a million different but ways like yeah I definitely don't regret it but it's definitely a learning that I've had over the years and you know there's no one way of doing it you know I've known people that have raised a million pounds and gone to market with that and I had a hundred like and it just totally depends what kind of product you've got what kind of ambitions you have and how many people you know that have that amount of money I guess this is what I find so fascinating about these chats is that you started just on a training run chatting about this brand and then it just throws you into this world of Mm. speaking to investors and wearing all those hats and I just think yeah yeah I don't know I always have so much respect for anyone that does that yeah oh so do I like if I meet someone at an event that sort of talks about a business that they're concocting. I don't know, I just think there's even bravery in the fact that you talk about, you you are willing to share something that you're excited about. Because actually, I remember being really embarrassed when I was talking about what I was doing. Like, you know, I remember going on like, meeting people at house parties and they'd ask you what do you do and then you'd have to try and do a convoluted way of explaining oh yeah and it's like this 10 minute kind of big ramble because you've got to kind of really explain it and justify that it's not this ridiculous thing that this is a viable business and like it's gonna be great but I know it's a bit weird and niche and um and but yeah you kind of it's quite it's quite self-conscious like versus if you just say you're an accountant it's you know what an accountant yeah. is and yeah. it's like you move on so yeah I have huge amounts of respect for anyone that gives anything a shot because it takes guts it takes you know a real kind of sense of self and confidence to, to, to do something like that and that hold your nerve I guess yeah, yeah. stick with it um, commit to something um, you know that can have about a million ideas but not many people actually say you know what I'm going to give this and try t- some of my time and commit to it yeah, definitely. and put my soul into it Look at you now. Still cracking on with it. Still smiling. Let's talk about the challenges along the way. Mm -hmm. So what have you what's been the hardest hat to wear? Um I think some of the I think probably a lot of people that you speak to probably be like the financial piece has probably been the hardest thing to learn. I think there have been some really tight moments in the brand where we've, you know, spent too much money or not um, not got enough money in the bank to pay for things. Um, and I think that it's such an... For me, I wasn't in business at all. I didn't know much about what profit and loss was and the meanings of cash flow until it got really tight so I think that's been some hard lessons that I've learned over the years and I think 
also supply chain is quite difficult with that kind of operations and supply chain the way it works there are a lot of systems and processes that you just need to build and and develop in a business that um needs some experience coming into it so as an example like you know there have been times where we've had site fallouts with a factory and they've shorted us for a month and to experience that was really difficult and knowing that there are probably things that you could have done to help mitigate those sorts of things mm-hmm. they can be really difficult or I remember Brexit being really tough when I that happened speaking about oh that. yeah do you want to explain like well I, I just remember so what we we buy some of our products in euros mm-hmm. so we very much are reliant on the um, the exchange rate that happens and I knew nothing about exchange rates before I started up the business and I remember actually the morning that Brexit happened and it got announced 26th of June and my sister sent a text message on our my family whatsapp and she was like oh bloody should have you know booked out my like got some euros out because I was, she was going on holiday to France or something the week after and she was complaining about the fact that she the exchange rate had changed and therefore her money wasn't worth as much I remember responding back to her and just being like, the context of this for my business was that we lost, um, you know, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds because the exchange rate moved so quickly that um, the pound got so weak against the, the euro. And it kind of quickly shut her up because she was like, oh, right, you're definitely experiencing a worse day than me right now. Um, and it was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, oh man, I've just lost hundreds of thousands. Um, and, you know, Every, so did everyone else in that same situation. I wasn't alone in that. Uh, but, I mean, 2016, though, you're only a year and a bit in. Yeah, right? so you've got so, really little experience in yeah. terms of how markets can fluctuate and actually what that means for your business. Mm-hmm. So it spun us into a whole spiral of, like, how do we fix this? How do we um, work out what to do next and make sure that we close that gap of, um, you know, loss in cash that we experience in the business. What was it a case of getting on the phone and trying to get more orders in. It's a case of working with your manufacturers to see how you can make sure um, that you are buying things at the right price, essentially. Because essentially what you're losing is margin, so you've got to somehow pull back the margin back into the business. And and there's also a case of needing to get more orders so that you have bigger volumes and you have better efficiencies. Loads of things, to be honest, that I won't bore you with the detail of, but... <laughs> Yeah, it, it makes you really focus on how to make sure that you're um, buying effectively and um, moving things around the UK in a, as efficient a way as possible and working with the right factories who give you really good cost pricing and all the... It just suddenly becomes gritty. very real that you own a business. Yeah, that exactly way. that. Yeah. You're no longer just building a really nice fluffy brand. Yeah. Well, that sounds a bit like demeaning, but you know what I mean. But there are also lots of like hard numbers and kind of systems and processes that you need to make sure you understand so that the business makes enough money to sustain itself so that you can continue to grow and do all the brilliant things that your brand does. Mm. I remember you saying that you just went for a walk and just tried to compose yourself. Yeah, I went to the office and then quickly went out the office and I actually called my accountant and cried on the phone to her and then I carried on walking around this park for a few laps until I could get to a point where I could go back in and sort of face my team and not be the one crying in the corner um yeah it was it was a sad day but I think you build a level of resilience through these things and after a while you realize that businesses have these ups and downs things that help knock you sideways and most of the time if you're doing the right things you'll figure it out it's not going to break you in that moment you just got to um act and 
be a bit proactive about fixing problems. It ultimately is what business is. Um, you know, recessions happen and people have to fight their way through that and the best businesses will last and yeah, those that aren't, yeah. yeah. Olivia Wallenberg, um, there's a quote she always says about you learn to fight fires and like yeah. every day she knows that there'll be a fire at some point in the day but she's it's that resilience thing she knows mm. she's got it and that she'll fight the fire yeah and you'll stop you'll stop having the like i think you know when the first thing goes wrong i mean sure you, you must have had it a million times at events like the first time something goes wrong or a speaker doesn't turn up you freak out and then it maybe happens a few times after that and you stop caring so much you care you just don't react to it. Honestly, my, my old job, I used to produce conferences and my first conference, I was 21, I flew to New York. I land, I think I landed at about 6 p.m. there, but I'd obviously been up early mm. and checked in at the hotel, but I was helping set up and then I went back to my room, went onto the Wi-Fi, because you know how in America you have to pay for Wi-Fi and everything. Yeah. It was about 9 p.m. and my keynote speaker for the morning had dropped out yeah. and I was like, uh-huh, okay, so now if, if someone drops out of the mingles, I'm like, oh, it's fine, I'm going to sort it out. You can wing I it. I remember that was panic and everything else, and so now I'm like, okay. But I'm that's it, you almost see something yeah. really awful to happen, yeah. so anything after that that's kind of a bit bad doesn't really feel that bad. This podcast is sponsored by Zero Accounting Software, who proudly support female entrepreneurs and help business owners to see their finances clearly. For help in getting your business digital ready, visit xero.com. What about other challenges? Other challenges? Um, was Brexit, like, was that the worst day on the job or have you had others? Um, the yeah, we've had other things like, you know, we've had products that haven't worked, um, which can be really disappointing when, you know, you, you hype it up with you in your head, you're really excited about something launching like for instance our almond milks we've actually delisted them now and yeah I was so excited about those products getting on the market the packs looked amazing and you know we thought the proposition was brilliant just flopped it just didn't sell what we thought it would and it it just didn't make sense to continue it and I fought it for a really long time I was like you know we just need to you know push it out on our marketing a bit harder we need to you know give it some time to sell for people to get aware of it in store um and then at some point or another I started to kind of have the reality check of like you know what this product is not worth keeping in our range and it being really difficult to let go and then also to sort of stand up in front of your team and be like hands up the product I developed didn't work and we're gonna have to now put it out of the market and you know not you know almost almost having to put on a good face to say we're going to learn from this and move on so products failing can be really tricky um partly because you know you bank on them also being successful so um that was definitely tough and yeah I think challenges in terms of learning how to be a leader I think you know I've only really I've never managed anyone before I started up the business so yeah what figuring out what kind of leader I wanted to be and kind of what inspires people to come to work and also having your own confidence to to be a leader within a team it can come kind of unnaturally to some people I think yeah and it's so funny isn't it because there's so many like books out there on what does a leader look like and I feel like there's so much noise now and it's kind of working out what actually you're comfortable with and what kind of leader you are and just doing it your way yeah exactly I think that's also partly it because you have to be yourself um, and therefore you almost have to get comfortable with who you are which is kind of a bit psychologically one of those things that you're like have to figure out and be okay with the fact that you're not 
like I'm not for instance Richard Branson he's amazing at, at the way how he leads his team but I just can't be that person so you almost have to accept it and be like but this is who I am and therefore what's inspiring about that and how does this work and how do I want to stand in front of my team and I feel like sometimes there's a kind of tendency to overcomplicate and read every single book and yeah. try every single practice and actually then you just confuse everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember I read, you know, I used to get in a bit of a flap around like our annual planning where we were planning the budgets for the following year and I used to get a bit confused about what, what strategy was. I was like, people keep telling me to like pull strategy together but I have no <laughs> idea what that looks like. And I remember reading this like quite complicated book on like multi-tiered strategy that was written by three guys who used to work big dogs at Unilever and they go into these really complicated frameworks and multi-layered, multi-territory, how you mesh different brands together and I read it and I was just, you know, totally unhealthy you just need to kind of almost put yeah. you just like do it your way and figure <laughs> it out and it's probably all right and yeah, um, just exactly. brainstorm put some post-its on a wall and um <laughs> you know set a target and you'll yeah. probably get on fine get an office dog yeah get an office got, dog yeah exactly <laughs> i think you can totally overcomplicate things and try and you know be bigger than you really are and just get sometimes it's okay just to be like well a small business will do it this way yeah definitely. figure it out what do you think it will be before because i think that how big's the team 13 of us at the moment. 14, so, yeah, someone used that. Like I guess that is small, but I see you such a, a big brand yeah. now. So what, what do you think it is when you start referring to yourself as a bigger brand? Like what, what? Man, I don't know when that point comes. I don't know when a, set, a startup stops being I've, a startup. I've had that conversation so many times. Like when? Like, no, I have <laughs> no idea. Because then do you, when do you become just a small business SME or a yeah, small yeah. medium business? I have no idea. I almost don't want to ever take away that mentality because I think there comes a grittiness and kind yeah. of like rough around the edges creativity yeah. yeah I assume it comes with a size of revenue that's the thing that in my mind I kind of think probably if you're at the when folks start telling you that you're a big business it's like okay, exactly yeah, yeah. Worked it out that's it <laughs> we're on that different list now that says that we're, we're now a, a small medium-sized business mm. but yeah it still feels like we're still relatively small at this stage we're all fit in one room can like shout at someone across the room so it feels small enough for me. How have your relationships evolved throughout this whole process? From the early days where you were just kind of turning up to the house parties as you said and explaining the idea mm. to now running that team of 13 and clearly doing it's going in the right direction. Mm. Have you seen any relationships evolve for the better or worse? throughout this process? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that people, most people that I meet are genuinely really excited and chuffed by the fact that the brand's growing and, mm -hmm. and moving in the right direction. Um, and I think they're always really curious. I think there's certainly a curiosity about what's going on. And, you know, I think within my sort of friendship circles, at least, like they're always such like ambassadors for the brand in their own right. I think you still always get um, a lot of naysayers. And I think particularly in the early days, we'd get people kind of almost saying, oh, you know, are you sure? And are you sure you think that's a good idea? And those come fewer and far between now. Um, so, I, I mean, I've never really had a negative experience of anyone actually doing something that's quite negative and I think the beauty of working in food and drink and it's one of the reasons why I enjoy the sector so much is that it's really really open people are incredibly forthcoming with advice and there's a really tight group of like startup brands that generally kind of mingle and 
um, you know, go out for drinks and so on. So and I've like just, who? Like so, you know, I'm good friends with the guys at Ugly. You know, the Moju, they're a drinks brand yeah. as well. They're really got the nice smoothie. lads. The smoothie yeah, guys. You know, Mallow and Marsh, Harriet. There. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Olivia. She's lovely as well. And I think. Um, yeah, that's what I like about it. There doesn't feel like a backstabbing attitude yeah. and... Which is um, really refreshing. It is really refreshing and I think there is a general vibe of I really want to see the, them succeed and if anything it's just a good thing for the nation if more yeah, better brands. Yeah, so we'll see. So yeah. far, so good. And what about uh, personal life? When, you know, as the business grows, the budgets get bigger and there's more, I guess, pressure on your shoulders, you've got the team. How do you switch off from this? Mm. What's your kind of go-to to make sure that you are looking after you, not just as a business, yeah. owner, but just yourself as well? Yeah, it's, it's funny because in the early days, I used to be like, I used to try and fast forward to what it'd be like when the business is four years down the line. And I feel like I'm doing that now. Yeah, and you're almost like, oh my God, it's going to be so much easier. You won't have to... There won't be so many unknowns and all that stuff, but I find now with it is that the stakes are so much higher. Like you suddenly got something to lose, so if things aren't going quite to plan, you're like this lovely business that you built, like could also still go under. Like there's no set given that it's just going to carry on. So your point, the pressure gets bigger. It does. Like the stakes get high, but you do at least have a team that helps support you to work your way through it. And actually, something that my coach once told me was like always share the pain. Like so, if you're experiencing a high bit of pressure because I don't know a retailer's just said no to you and that's going to affect your year, like share it with your team. Like don't keep it on your shoulders and expect you to fix the problem. So that's I think one thing is to start to be like. Actually, don't just hold it in. Share it. Don't freak everyone out, but certainly share it. And um, you're going under, guys. Yeah, we've got one day yeah, left. Um, but share it, and it makes you feel better. I'm still not great about not taking the stress back home, and certainly have found it difficult to kind of switch off. My go-to, and it still continues to be my go-to from day one, is go out for a run. It really is like 30 minutes. Sometimes I just go out for 10 minutes, actually, and that would be enough to kind of shake something out of me um, that kind of helps close the day. Um, I run most mornings with my sister. Just yeah. Out and I feel like it just sets me up for the day. I don't Absolutely, know. yeah. And it doesn't need to be a really yeah. tough, long run. You could go really slow. Yeah. And I think there's something really nice about doing something for you at some point during the day that is like slowly for you and nothing related to your business and nothing related to anyone else. It's quite a selfish thing, but do I it. I take the dog to walk now as well. Uh, I take the dog running with me sometimes. Yeah, I think I think it's something that ebbs and flows with kind of how much you can look after yourself, but I go to bed at 10.30, 10 if I'm being really good every day, pretty much. I'm right, granny, and I think that that also helps in terms of keeping yourself healthy. Sleep is like everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is, and I love it. Okay. And it enables you to still have the energy to then go for a run in the morning, so I think balance in that sense is quite good. Yeah, definitely. You've won the Forbes 30 under 30 list, weren't you? Mm -hmm. Not that that's a be all and end all, but that's a quite a good. You're doing all right. Yeah, chat <laughs> for that. Um, I mean, how many big stores are you in now? So um, around the UK, we're in about just under five thousand stores. What's the proudest moment if you look back on the past four, five, well, no, six years? If we go from the very beginning, then. Um, oh, there've been loads of uh, amazing moments. Some of the awards that we've won, I've been really proud of. Like we won sort of sort of product-based business of the year, a startup award that I'd always looked at when I was starting up my business and thought one day maybe we might win something like that. That was a really proud moment. Sometimes when you get that external validation, it's really pleasing. Um, 
I get a bit of like, you know, spine tingling kind of hair raising moments when we do events. Like I find like we did last summer Taste of London and we did this really cool like converted a container and just a wicked activation. And I looked at that and I, I felt I remember seeing that on Instagram. Yeah, it was yeah. it just looked it looked really cool and I was just like, Oh, this is so wicked that yeah. this is the brand and like I do be on the stand and every so often you get someone walk past and be like God, I love that brand. And it would be like unprompted, just them walking past and I'd overhear it and just being like, oh, that's so yeah. nice that yeah. you get that. So those sorts of things I think really get me when I kind of get, I don't know, a letter from someone in the post that like, on, again, unprompted and someone just saying, oh, you know, your products are brilliant, eat them every morning, like, cool. That's um, amazing. Um, like taking the time to properly handle Yeah, that. I know. And that, I just love that. So yeah, sometimes it's not even like the big, like getting an award moment that feels like the good bit. It's almost like, if yeah little little things really that kind of remind you that you're like oh this is quite cool that we're creating something and this didn't exist a number of years ago 100% and, and then going forward can you see yourself doing this forever yeah I think I I mean in some sort of capacity I'll definitely be involved in the brand I do sometimes think you know at some point if the business goes in the way that I hope it does that maybe it, I probably won't be the best person to run it so at some point maybe in the, I don't know, 10-year horizon, there might be a moment where, I don't know, managing director to come in to kind of do it properly sort of thing. But I think no matter what, I'll be connected with the brand and give it, want to steer the ship in terms of, you know, what kind of products we launch or how the brand evolves in terms of its, you know, purpose and comms and, you know, philanthropic activities and things like that. So, yeah, it's got my name in it, so it's quite hard to get out of it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the job changes um, and how my role changes within it, but I certainly will still absolutely love it. So I can't really, when people say you're going to, you know, leave the business at some point, I find that quite difficult to imagine. Yeah. Will it go global? Has it gone global? It's not really. We're very UK at the moment. We've yeah. got a couple of like territories that we've gone into, but all focused on the UK. But maybe, maybe, maybe next phase Watch two. <laughs> phase two, yeah. Okay, rounding up then. I have ended every podcast with a few statements. I'll mm -hmm. start the sentence and I'd like you to finish it, please. Sure. Um, number one, being my own boss means? Um, choosing what I do every day and um, being excited to come to work. Do you think that's still the case now? Yeah, I still choose what I want to work on. Really? If I don't want to do something, I'll ask someone else to do it. <laughs> yeah, amazing. I love that. But when it's not quite going to plan, my advice would be to? Uh, not panic. Um... Take a step back and ask for some advice. And you mentioned a coach. Is that is they yeah. they she she been the same from the outset? No, so I've got a, I've got like a mentor who's been there from day one. So I'd probably give him a call or a text or something and be like, Hi, can I call Hi. you? Help me. <laughs> um, I think the best thing when things don't go to plan is not be impulsive. Like, the worst thing you could do is send, like, an impulsive email or, um, you know, suddenly panic. Yeah. So that's sometimes why just taking, like, an hour or two-hour gap from responding to whatever it is that's going badly wrong. Because, yeah, normally the, the first impulse is probably the wrong one, mm -hmm. especially if you're going on a bit of, like, <laughs> adrenaline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number three, if I could go back to day one of my business, I'd tell myself. Um, I'd tell myself that... Things might not always go to plan, as per the last question, but not to be so hard on myself if they don't. Um, I think I can be my own worst enemy, and sometimes, if I probably 
heard some of the stuff that I say in my head to myself, I'd probably think you're being a bit unkind to yourself. Mm. Um, you just can't control every, everything, and I probably would say that. There's just some things that are out of your control that you will make the mistakes on, and you've just got to come to terms with it. Yeah. Do you think you, it's just expectations you put the kind of yeah. the perfectionist almost? Absolutely, I've got the highest expectations, um, and I very uncompromising on some things particularly when it comes to product and brand and what that looks like mm-hmm. um, I can have unreasonable expectations I think and I of myself and what I need to deliver and I think that can be unhelpful in terms of actually being just a bit mean and not, not, not enjoying the journey as much um, when you're kind of a bit hard on yourself in actual fact you're doing great you yeah. just need to kind of get a bit reality check yeah. I feel like everyone listening will be thinking she's doing so unbelievably well <laughs> So, yeah. yeah. What's that Jess Glynn song? It's like, don't so hard on yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I should listen to that on my way to work. I literally listen to that all the time. I'm like, it. I hear you, Jess. Yeah. Um, if I had to describe myself as a businesswoman, I'd say that. I'd say that I'm, I'm not very good at kind of being the CEO at the front of the room, so I, or very good at wearing that suit or high heel mm. combo, and that's what I always think a businesswoman is. So, um, yeah, I'm a bit more... Scrappy around the edges. Yeah. That's good though. It's more real, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it's less intimidating, I think. I think so. I think it's definitely shifting because um, so funny. I asked that obviously end all the podcast with that, and everyone's like, I don't see myself as a businesswoman because we've all got that stereotypical <laughs> yeah. kind of Deborah Meaden. Yeah. 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 Dragon esque yeah. person. And she, you know, nothing wrong with her, but just it's hard to relate sometimes. Totally. Um, and very lastly, I want my legacy to be that. That a business can do good, I think, and I think there are lots of examples of businesses that I'm following in the footsteps of that I admire. But I want to have a business that I look at, and I think I look after my team. I am proud of the product in terms of from a sustainability and a product credentials, and that you know we give back as well. And I think that is the future of business. And as and that grows I want to embed that more and more within the way that we do things yeah thank you no pleasure thank you for having me it's been great talking to you thank you for listening to She Can She Did if you fancy being a complete star and doing your good deed for the day please feel free to rate review and subscribe on iTunes to give the She Can She Did series a little boost and help others to find it You can also attend the Midweek Mingles, the She Can She Did event series for female founders and aspiring female business owners, featuring a whole lot of business inspiration and the all-important G&Ts in equal measure. For more information and to book your ticket, head to www.shecanshedid.com. I would love to see you there.